ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਵਾਰ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਸੋ ਬਿਫੋਰ ਵੀ ਕਿਕ ਦਾ ਵਾਕਿੰਗ ਸਟਿਕ ਅਵੇ ਫਰਮ ਦਾ ਬਲਾਈਂਡ ਮੈਨ ਆਫ ਇਗਨੋਰੈਂਸ ਟੁਡੇ ਆਈ ਜਸਟ ਗੋਟ ਅ ਫੀਊ ਥਿੰਗਸ ਟੂ ਸ਼ੇਅਰ ਬਿਫੋਰ ਵੀ ਸਟਾਰਟ ਓਕੇ ਨਾ ਫਰਸਟ ਥਿੰਗ ਫਰਸਟ ਇਜ਼ ਦੈਟ ਵੀ ਰਿਸੀਵਡ ਅ ਲਵ ਲੈਟਰ ਅਕੋਰਡਿੰਗ ਟੂ ਦਾ ਇੰਡੀਵਿਜੂਅਲ ਔਨ ਟਵਿੱਟਰ ਨਾ ਯੂ ਨੋ ਬਲਾਸਟ ਮੀ ਫॉर ਮੇਕਿੰਗ ਅ ਰਿਮਾਰਕ ਔਨ ਸਮਵਨਸ ਪਰਸਨਲ ਅਪੀਅਰੈਂਸ ਬਟ I think we are seeing uh, the evolution of the Dilsaf gang. From Dilsaf they're going straight to Dendisaf. So you're using the word devolution. Well I don't know what it is but they're shaving off to here it seems just to make a point down here that you know their hearts are as clean as their head. I guess that's the point. <laughs> um <clears throat> So this one was made in relation to the fact that there's a very uh well I mean if you turn up auto tune on your editing suite I mean even like sure you can become a singer you know what I mean like the bhojpuri types in India that just turn auto tune on and just sing the crap out of your ears I'll make your ears bleed <laughs> they will make your ears bleed So basically when Bambi Bands does a song she pretty much turns up auto cue and that's the thing so she shared a picture with a singer named uh, Steel Bangles and in this picture she uh, made a caption that a sing and core doing their ting they don't say fing they say ting Now if I was one of the upgrades or the vokes and I saw that picture I would take it at face value but me and a few hundred others spent two days trying to find where the hell the sing and the core were in that picture okay that's a very deep philosophy though now unfortunately though like you know there's a book uh, i think the author's name is jenny uh Nemo or something I can't remember anyway the main ante- uh, protagonist is a boy named Charlie Boyne and if he looks at a picture he can go into the picture in that time and space continuum and uh, you know do things in the picture now unfortunately we are not Charlie Boyne so we can't go in the picture and look underneath the tents where the hell these sing uh, where this sing and core is but uh anyway this uh Dilsaf Dendsaf guy he reminded us that we were shit keyboard warriors and that really that uh you know vahiguru looks at your heart and not your appearance all that thing and apparently steel bangles went to a protest in london for the farmers and he nearly got arrested i mean first thing first is who told him to go and second thing why the hell were you breaking the quarantine rules and how can you say that that makes you a hero as the uh, <clears throat> i would say the, the savior complex Yep, so from there it turned into that, oh, you guys call yourself Sikhs, you want Sikhs, we are Sikhs, blah, 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 Sikhi is Dilsaf, and uh, Vaigru, you know, Y-G-R-U. Anyway, so after he started the insults, <laughs> our team members got angry and fired back that Dilsaf comment, and I was looking at it this morning in the, you know, everyday report, and I was just laughing, like, straight from Dilsaf to Dilsaf, man, how... How rotten has our prachatic system become that we can't even convince people to keep the Khalsa parents? Well, you see the changing demographic and, you know, they got to make money. That's their business. So you can't expect honesty from them. Yep. And so this message, though, this uh, love letter from him was the exception. Usually they do it on Wednesday. 
Bodvar. So I'm thinking they followed the Bodkam should rule as well. <laughs> anyway, that's all I wanted to really say in regards to these issues down here because expect a lot of this to happen in the coming few months because, you know, when a movement is about to come to its end, you know, when a dog is about to die, that's when the dog gets more aggressive than ever before in its life. Uh, yep, but you're using the wrong animal here. Dogs are loyal. <laughs> anyway, so before, like, let's just set the agenda down here. You know, the tales of the past, history essentially, should show us what to avoid and what to do in the future today. And in the present, I guess. The thing is that if you look at the glories, the successes, the triumphs of the past, we also need to look at the failures of the past, probably more at the failures than we look at the you know successes. In my view, in my reading of history, success isn't as great as the amount of failures humanity has had. Well, success is more celebrated, so people think there are more of them. Yep. Failures essentially have ultimately shaped our world today than success. Yep, true. I mean, look, I apologize for my tongue, man. Like last night, I finally learned how to say cis-heteropatriarchy, and after that, my tongue is twisted. So yeah, I apologize for that. <laughs> Sometimes I want to use the word anti-disestablishmentarianism. I can say it in one go. Oh, cool. But... I can't say it twice. No, I can't do it. <laughs> You're like, I, I don't know how they come up with these attempts. You know, like the one is that we need to dismantle Brahman, judge, cis, hetero, patriarchy. And I was thinking like, I know what a Brahmin is. I know what a jat is. But what the hell is cis, hetero, patriarchy? But because they were on their space, I didn't even bother asking me. And I just, it was some pretty scary stuff going on. That's for sure. We got to do this. We got to do that. We got to take this out. We got to take that. Like, you know what they say that we got to, Ultra Gurbani, take the good bits out and leave the bad bits behind. I mean, who's going to stand for that? I actually find it like quite funny that, okay, uh, I don't know, have you seen that meme that uh, they blame, okay, you are too, let's say, there's no diversity, you are too intolerant, let us in, you know, you, you need diversity. So you yep. let them in. Their numbers go up, the original stock goes down, and then they say there is no place in this group for hateful people for hateful people like you. So you are thrown out of your own own country, own society, own group. Well, that's what exactly happened with the Sikhs. They're after Noab Kapoor saying that's exactly what happened with us. All these converts came in. We never judged whether they were authentic or not. And next thing you know. Anyone who says anything which goes against what the mainstream, you know, believes to be mainstream today, and you got all these French groups setting against you. Well, that's usually what happens. The exact same thing happens when there are revolutions, because a new people come in and they are, let's say, more radical than the people who actually carried out the revolution, and they are soon replaced. I mean, if you look at Robespierre, he led the French Revolution, and then three days later, he was dead as well. They killed him as well. Well, but unfortunately, that's the way it goes. So, essentially, today we have reached a particular stage. And I mean, I call this the Spartan Testudo Complex. 
Yes, it is the test tutor. Am I right? Test tutor or tetsudo? No, it's the test tutor. I gotta ask the Greeks, bro. Romans, wasn't it? No, Sparta, Greece. Oh, yeah. Okay, so what I mean is that this is a term I've made up, so it isn't something you're going to find in a medical book or anything. So, you know, before someone decides to uh, push a copyright, it's actually my copyright. Yeah, so it's uh, what I call the Spartan Testudo uh, complex. Now, <clears throat> this is going to sound pretty off kilter, but I believe there are two groups in the sequel today who suffer from the Spartan Testudo complex more than anyone else. And those are? The first one I would say is the traditionalists. Mm -hmm. And the second one I would say are the upgrades. Okay. Yep. Hear me out. When Alexander the Great came into India, his, you know, in the, into the subcontinent, his Macedonians were so thirsty they ran, and he allowed them to run to the closest river and start drinking to their fill. Hundreds died because their stomachs tore due to the excessive water they were putting into their esophagus. That happened in 326 BC. Yep. And, you know, when people are starving and you go on a rescue mission and you get them, even in the desert, the first thing you're told is not to let them eat anything at all or drink anything at all. You've got to lay them down, allow the body to regain its equilibrium, and then you can, you know, give them only a bit of food and a bit of water. I mean, most people think that, you know, if, uh, like, uh, if you remember the Donner Party in the USA, some of their members who were confined in the snow, who were trapped, when they were found, you know, they got up in the middle of the night to, uh, you know, fulfill their hunger and they ate themselves to death. You you are not in control of your body at that stage. Well, you might think that this is what I need to do to survive, but it's actually going against you. Yep. I mean, if you're suffering from, a, you know, excessive hypothermia and you have seen this happen, I mean, yeah, okay, this is going to be pretty stuffed up. But I had a friend who's in the States and he was investigating a serial killer down in Colorado and uh, this uh, freak apparently got a gill and just massacred her against the farmland down there. But the thing was that uh, she was actually in the nude and they later deduced that this was because she was walking in the cold and it was so cold she got hypothermia. And as the body started, you know, heating itself up to ward off the cold, you start taking off your clothes because you start believing it's actually getting more warmer. It actually happens uh, usually... Uh... <clears throat> okay. It happens uh, with the mountain climbers sometimes. I've seen it on Discovery Channel. It happens. Yep. yep. So, I mean, that's the thing, like, you know, so taking that metaphor, taking that allegory that you think it's good for you, but it isn't good for you. Similarly, what we have with the Upgrade Gang today is that they believe excessive liberalism is the way to go. Uh, yeah, uh, they have this, yeah. They have this content in them, yeah. So, um... Look, there was an incident a few years back. I mean, Vera Gill got pregnant to her cousin and they drowned the baby or something. And uh, at that time, I mean, I remember one of the upgrade shows and they were saying that, look, this is going to happen. We need to tolerate it. We can't go and keep, uh, you know, keep going around killing a woman, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in my mind, these are three distinct issues. The first issue is that, you know, in the household, there was maybe some sort of a failure where they weren't able to, you know, raise the gill and seek, you know, values. Secondly, Sikh society failed her. 
Thirdly, the killing part is very different to what they're actually lining it out to be, that this was an issue of the girl, you know, falling in love with her cousin and getting pregnant. The fact is, that happened. Does that mean that the family had the right to kill a child? No. But on the other hand, on the other hand, if it happens, does that mean the family has the right to keep that girl in the house? Why can't they just, you know, tell her to go away and set up somewhere else? You know, it's a two-way street, but... I believe the upgrades do ignore the two-way thing just to push the liberal line so they seem very, uh, you know, uh, how would you say, very appealing to white society at the moment. Uh, it's, it's actually something that, uh, I don't know what's the exact term for it, like people who are intelligent expect others to be intelligent as well. Mm-hmm. If you're responsible, you expect others to be responsible as well. Yep. Well, the well, reality is different. Yep. But the thing was that they pretty much criminalized uh, telling your kids to, you know, marry a Sikh. Yep. It's a, no. It's, it's, it's actually... Uh, uh, how do I put this? If you have no identity, <clears throat> and if you have no loyalty... What's what's the whole point of running a campaign? If you don't have any identity, I mean, this is what I actually find a lot of times. There are people, look, obviously there are issues with the Dasam Granth. Fine, then if people want to, you know, say we don't believe in it, that's their full right, go for it. But in the race to say that, they're overstepping their marks as well. Now, <clears throat> Gurbaks and Kala Afghana and many of these other uh, scholars, they quote many contemporary sources from the Guru's time to establish a point. I mean, they are Amritari, they wear the Kakars, they believe in the, you know, Kandebate, the Amrit, even though Afghana had that thing where he said that it's not the Amrit which makes you a Sikh, but the path which leads you towards Kian Amrit, which is shown in Gurbani. You know, in the Tankanama, Guru Gobind Singh details by Nandalal as well that the Khalsa is one who is the living expression of Gurbani. So you can see that the Guru does not want things to stop at Kandebate de Paul. He wants you to go further and follow the path of Gurbani. <clears throat> in the same race, though, when people start saying that, oh, we don't even know what the Guru's names are, or maybe Gurbani has been changed, or that we don't even need to believe in her head because the Guru's worth nothing else besides Gurbani, then you really need to ask them that, are you dead poor? You can't afford a shaving kit, or do you want us to send you a shaving kit? <laughs> I mean, when there is no antecedent to your identity, no base to it with which you can confirm it, so why are you even following that identity? I mean, you're saying that the Guru Granth Sahib is your Guru, but you're saying history has been tempered with, so how do you know the Guru Granth Sahib is your Guru? It's actually the same thing. A kangaroo would actually go into the water and wait for you to follow you in the water. and it will, it will, The kangaroo would drown you. Yep. yep. So if, if, you, if you take the bait, you're dead already. So the way we're going, once again, you've got to look at it. The way we're going is that <clears throat> a long time ago, let's take the example of the Spartans, the Romans, and the Chinese. So first, focus on the Spartans. Obviously, you know, Spartan Testudo complex. <clears throat> Sparta, the Spartan homeland, is locked in by mountains. Yep. If it made them, you know, quite heavily defended, if they were naturally defended, it also entrapped them at the same time. 
speaking strategically, no one could get over the mountains, but they had a hard time getting over the mountains as well. So they decided that they had to expand their base because, you know, obviously they had a burgeoning population, they were growing in strength, and they had to consolidate their gains as well. So the Spartans first redesigned their military machine, and uh, you know what they first offered Greece? What military tactic they offered Greece, the one which inspired the Panzer divisions in Nazi Germany as well? You know what it was called? Blitzkrieg. Pardon? The Blitzkrieg you're talking about? No, no, no. The Panzer, the triangular divisions, they're actually inspired by the Spartan phalanx. The triangular division. Okay. Yeah, so they made the phalanx. They were the first ones to make the phalanx. I mean, obviously, it became common throughout Greece until uh, Philip of Macedonia redesigned it as well, but he incorporated the Spartan designs. Right, so the phalanx became pretty deadly in battle. I mean, the thing you have to remember is that in war, people who haven't been in war or in the military, but, I mean, we are experienced enough in that. Like, the thing is that in battle, it isn't about the number of men who are shouting and firing. It's about the most disciplined men. Always has, always has been. Yep. If you look at the British, I mean, or if you look at the Americans, you know, when they uh, took over Native American lands, the usual tactic used to be for the people on horses, horseback riders, to just charge blindly at them, and they just used to take the square formation uh, before the machine gun, and they just used to start firing. Bang, bang, the other line came forward, the other line came forward, other line came forward. Guys at the back, you know, kept on loading until ultimately the enemy wore thin, the enemy wore themselves out, and these guys had moved enough to cleave a, you know, a division in their ranks and then, you know, make two square formations and make smaller square formations from there and just take them out, route them straight away. Yep, uh, tactics matter more than numbers, that's true. Yep. Now, the thing with Sparta was that Sparta lost battles, but it didn't lose wars. That's a very important distinction. Yep, so war is the overarching conflict, Battle consists of the individual combat on the ground level. <clears throat> so ultimately, to give a more practical example, the Sikhs won their war for survival, but they lost a few battles, right? Anyway, moving on. After the phalanx, the Spartans, you know, expanded all throughout Greece and they realized that they needed to somehow stop their society from betraying the gains they had acquired now obviously there was a sense of cultural pride here as well as well as you know religious uh, elements into play the athenians are believed to be the first ones in history to be the secondary party to say that the spartans were a warrior people so they played up the spartans own uh, belief about themselves spartans fell for it straight away now, we all know that the military society Sparta made, I mean, you know, when we say someone's Spartan, the frugality, you know, the de self-deprivation, self-sacrifice, we call it all Spartan today. You know, pretty much we're saying, oh, look, that is Spartan. So they live on through words as well. So they have given us definitions for self-sacrifice today. Sparta designed such a military territory that boys, when they were seven years old, were taken away from their mothers. Women were also trained in combat. And, you know, by the time they were 26, they emerged as warriors. They derided sex, they derided wealth, they derided all luxury, all fine things in life. I mean, if you gave one Spartan a piece of bread, he would share it with his entire cohort. That's like how united Sparta was. <clears throat> Ultimately, the Spartan shadow conquered all of Greece before the Macedonians. And naturally, their eye fell on Athens. 
Now, obviously, Themistocles and others had helped them ward off the Persians, but the fact was that Athens was a seafaring nation. Its navy had more capability than its army, and ultimately, Sparta conquered Athens. <clears throat> so, guess what happens next? They can't hold it. They could hold it, but the Athenians had other designs because, you know, the Athenians had wandered throughout the known world at the time. They had seen a lot of things. They were, you know, a trade center. Sparta soon enough realized that all the trade Athens was doing, if they allowed it to continue, all those finances, those resources could actually fund their campaigns as well. What they didn't realize was that essentially the original Spartans, now those born in Sparta through, you know, multiple generations who had lived in Sparta, they were the head of the garrisons. They were made local commanders. Now, obviously, the occupying force is always uh, smaller than the occupied, you know, entity. Mm -hmm. So, Athens decided to use its soft power. They kept on telling the Spartans, your warriors, your mighty warriors. And this, you know, com not compelled, but almost directed the Spartans towards a false sense of pride that they became even more militaristic. They kept on fighting, 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 but this created a shell around them. I mean, imagine the Toros or any other shelled animal. You know, they're always going to be vegetarian because they're not fast enough to catch meat. Now, the Toros on the ground is eating his grass. Lion comes along, and people think the Toros is going to survive because it will go in its shell. All the lion does is swiftly flip it over, and the same shell becomes the bell for the lion. It gets trapped in its own shell. It's trapped in its own shell. And that's exactly what happened with Sparta. For physical mobility, they sacrificed mental mobility. Ultimately, even the phalanxes became so sophisticated that Sparta pretty much forfeited all form of physical mobility as well. So the mental policy was translating into the physical, the political and military policy as well. So, you know, ultimately Sparta could not get beyond the myth of being a martial people. The Athenians, smartly enough, decided not to rebel against the Spartans and give them cause to, you know, feel that they were different from them. Rather, they welcomed the Spartans with open arms. And ultimately, those garrison commanders started, you know, seeing how the Athenians lived, how they had a social order going. And, you know, that soft power finally made them materialistic. And that's how the rot started in Spartan society. I can think of, think of a parallel in our own history. Yep. So ultimately what happened was that the Spartans, the Spartans did not have enough mental mobility left to think outside war. They didn't realize that, you know, the Athenian soft power was another form of war. Once it corrupted them, it became so profound and deeply entrenched in them that 10 years later when they marched against Thebes, the Thebans pretty much destroyed, outmaneuvered, outflanked, outran their phalanxes. And the other issue was that Spartan commanders, those ones who turned against Sparta, they were promised riches and luxury, and they betrayed the Spartans, their own people. A story as old as the universe itself. The fact is, the Spartans never realized they didn't have enough mental mobility, mental swiftness, mental rapidity to realize that a new form of conflict was staring them right in the face and it was making gains. 
I mean, when people say that, you know, America was forced out of Afghanistan, forced out of Vietnam, forced out of this, forced out of that, you can still see that American soft power is present down there. And ultimately, that soft power will prevent the enemy from ganging up and getting rid of America. I have a question. Yep. Do the Spartans have their own version of, let's say, 20-foot-tall warriors or demigods? <laughs> yep, they had their own versions. It's, it's pretty similar to what we are seeing among ourselves today. See, at times when Sparta was conquered, it wasn't conquered for long, but whenever they had a foreign power over them, an alien power over them, or even a visiting power over them, those people made sure to, you know, praise them and say, you're a warrior race. Sparta expect, uh, accepted that, and the Athenians cleverly utilized it against them. So when, let's say, a foreign entity praises you, it's actually undermining you. Take praise and criticism with a pinch of salt. That's my rule in life. Always. Always. You know, I see no point in some foreign entity praising me. So why are you praising me? You must have something to gain out of it. Either you want a trade deal or you want to subvert me. Mm -hmm. See, back in the day, this is why Nader Shah, you know, when uh, Nader Shah was raided by Charat Singh Sukarchaki and several hundred others, he asked Zakaria Khan, who, oh, not Zakaria, I believe Mir Manu, or uh, either of the two, now I can't remember. Uh, he asked them that, who are these people? And he, you know, the guy told him that, you know, this is, these are the Sikhs, they live on their horses, etc., etc. And Nader Shah was actually thinking that these people live in the forests, retain no formal education, but they're able to unite, able to, you know, utilize all these uh, desperate military tactics. They're able to win hearts and minds. They have made the Punjab's problems their own, so people see them as liberators. He turned around and told them, be really careful. One day, that day is not far away when these people will rule this country. Because he knew that the Sikh brain was much more powerful than the Sikh sword. I mean, a very important distinction. Yep. I mean, think about it this way. Right. Banda Singh Bhadra fell, right? He got betrayed by the Sikhs. Nawab Kapoor Singh comes along and they tell him, look, we need to fortify ourselves. He decides we're not going to fortify ourselves. We can't be penned into one place. We can't armor ourselves so, you know, uh, so heavily that we lose all form of mobility. We all always need to be changing. You know, he made the Buddha Dal, Tarnadal, divided them each into five minor jathas, then several more jathas. Then he went and created the Khalsa missile system. The man was always changing. You know, he had a lot of mental mobility, mental rapidity. If he had to retreat, he would retreat. He would never fight a pitched battle. Even when they built the fort of Ram Rooney or Ramgar, after which the Ramgariyas took their name, even that fortress had exits to, you know, evacuate quickly enough. Then you come to Guru Gobind Singh Ji. He never made his last stand at Anandapur. He evacuated as well. Great statesmen and commanders. You know, there's an overlap in the military and civil world, uh, worlds as well. If you can comprehend the principles behind military tactics, you can use them today in the world of politics and business. Well, usually it's this way, yeah. I mean, there's a reason why people are reading, you know, the art of war and all these books, even today, you know, big businessmen, big politicians. But, you know, the irony is lost on our own people today. 
Anyway, what happens is that the Spartans got destroyed by Athenian software straight away. They've become a former shadow of themselves. And this, I believe, is the fate of all warrior races. Sorry, I mean, Oh, yeah. Yeah, back. Yep. I mean, this, I believe, is the fate of all warrior races today. I mean, would we call the English a warrior race? Okay. Actually, uh, I was having this conversation with somebody not too long ago that people who have conquered the entire world, you will never, ever hear them say that we are the best of the best, that we conquered everything, that mm. we are the warrior people. Mm-hmm. Because they refuse to be mentally armored. You know, they refuse that. If you accept that, that starts forming your outlook. Now, we grew up in households where the first resort was that Sikhs are yodi adikom, Sikhs can do this, Sikhs aren't afraid to die. Yeah, sure. But if you look at the history of the past two, three decades, like even, you know, from 47 onwards or before 47, we have been blindly rushing into, you know, battles which aren't even our own to fight. Fighting battles that are not ours to fight. Fighting wars that are not, not ours to fight. I mean, Sangat Singh seeks in history. He makes you know use of contemporary sources. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi insulted the Sikhs quite heavily at Nankana Sahib, but then all he did later was you know to fool the Sikhs. He said, "Look, we are all brothers. You're our warriors. Blah blah blah. You're brave Sikhs, etc. etc. And look what Master Tara Singh got us." You exist to die for us. That's what he said. And essentially, that that praise blinds you. I mean, that's what the British did as well. That's what the British did as well. Yep. But for the British, it was quite straightforward that we will employ you, we will pay you, and we will reward you. They, they, they didn't show any brotherly love to us. Hmm. See, the thing that goes like this is there are many people who criticize Professor Gurmukh Singh and the Lahore Singh Sabha for not uh, spotting the Amritsar Singh Sabha's bid to uh, raise a revolt to get Maharaja Dalip uh, Singh back on the throne of Lahore. Uh, well, uh, would you say that Dalip Singh wasn't a Sikh looking to restore a Sikh kingdom, but a king, let's say a prince? Look, this is what Professor... Uh, power, Prof that's it. He had no yes. loyalty to the, to the Sikh people. This is what Professor Gurmukh Singh articulated at the time. First, the man believed himself to be the 11th Guru. This is what, you know, Maharani Jinda, when she had gone mental in her old age, that's what she fed him. Secondly, what did the first Sikh empire get us? Maharaja Ranjit Singh, one man surrounded by all these, you know, aggrandizing uh, advisors. He dies, the good guys are, you know, killed as well. Bad guys take over and ultimately we fall to the British. Is that going to be our fate a second time around? Not even that. How could you call it an empire? I mean, the thing was that by Khan Singh Naba pointed this out as well, is that, you know, the British mode of, ed mode of education, what they're doing, they have impartiality in there. But the thing is, they are blind to the, the impartiality seated in their own systems as well. Their hypocrisy aside... On the other hand, Pai Khan Singh Naba also argued that these people have conquered the world. We will never be the same again. Why don't we see how they have done it? 
there are no divisions among the white men on that little island. Uh, you, you, you could say that, yeah. But you, you need to think about it. They're the same as us. They have their own internal little conflicts. But ultimately, when it becomes a matter of national prestige, community importance, societal importance, religious importance, everyone is on a united front. Us, we are running around chasing each other. You could wear a, a wrong type of turban and they will chase you out. They will chase you out. And this is all this mental armor we have all around us, built all over us now. The Romans, the Testudo formation, they linked up. It was like facing a tortoise, okay? But there was a problem here. If you were cavalry, you could outrun them and tire them out and finish them off. Secondly, they weren't uh, fast as they were on individual levels. So, you know, even coordinating that entire Testudo formation was pretty damn hard. Okay. Uh, do you know who was Armenius? Uh, I have the German. Hermann the German. <laughs> yep. The, uh, the Battle of uh, uh, Teutoburg Forest. I don't know how to pronounce it in German. Yeah, Teutoburg. I mean, basically, was it a year later they went down there and found all those uh, thousands of skeletons and realized what had happened to their armies? Two entire legions lost. And a yep. Roman emperor going mad, berserk, losing his mental stability. Waking up in cold sweat, yelling, Advaris, give me my legions back. So they all dead, can't give you back any of them. I mean, that's exactly what happened with Bahadur Shah, waking up, getting uh, peasants massacred. I mean, there's a contemporary record in the court documents that there was a massacre of several thousand dogs around Lahore because uh, Bahadur Shah thought that Banda Singh had shape-shifted into a dog and was spying on him. <laughs> I mean, look at Banda Singh as well. They tried avoiding pitched battles as much as they could and re uh, relied on, you know, Hail and Pandaru campaigns where they just swept and finished the enemy and went away. I mean, you heard Professor Balvan Singh Tillo that day. They fought with a mountain, forest or river to their backs. You know, this was all about having mental mobility. If you look at the Marathas, on the other hand, their women and children were behind their backs. That's how Abdali wiped them out and got all those slaves at Panipat. The reason why I gave the example of uh, Tutbuk Forest is like the Romans at that time were, let's say, near their peak. Yeah, they hadn't peaked yet, but they were you know, on the way. And their military strategy worked, but it didn't work in the forest. In the forest, they were totally out of their depth. They were ambushed by naked German tribes. Yep, yep, that's right. That's that's exactly how entire, it is. Entire legions wiped out. That's the reason that west of the River Rhine you have Romance languages and east of the River, River Rhine you have Germanic languages. Mm -hmm. and I mean, so 2,000 was years ago, 2,000 years ago, AD 9, and Rome never ever conquered Germany. That, that's the thing. You know, the man Armenius, he was pretty damn smart. He studied everything. He knew what they were doing, what their formations were. And he also knew that essentially they would not be able to adapt to what he was about to throw at them. Yep. And look at it at the other way. You know, how did he retain that hold on the Germanic tribes? 
I mean, even after what happened, the Romans were still looking for an easy opportunity to go in there and wipe him out. <clears throat> oh, he, a few years later, he was actually murdered by his own people. They said he was too ambitious or you know, his, his brain was corrupted by power. But he still, still he ensured their, that their sovereign, uh, sovereignty was preserved. Yeah, permanently, <clears throat> yes. The Romans never conquered them permanently. There were a few military campaigns, but no permanent establishment of Roman Empire over there. See, that's the thing. That's the thing. When you come to the Sikhs and you look at it, when we were mentally mobile, we could change our governing systems. You know, first I gave the example that, you know, with Moab Kapoorson, we have the most comprehensive government systems we had to date. First, he had the Panth divided into two Dals, then he divided them into several further five, you know. <clears throat> And, you know, going along those lines, finally he decided we have expanded all over the Punjab rather than one man rule over everyone and, you know, led to friction, led to confrontations. Why not divide it into 12 mini-states, uh, 11 to 12 mini-states, and, you know, make one missile responsible for each of them, meet at the Kaltat, I will be the Jatedar presidential, and they will be like the senators, and that's it, everything's done for. Mm hmm you know, as we expand, as we conquer new areas, we're giving people a voice. We are able to keep on top of whatever problems we might have. However, then you see Maharaja Ranjit Singh, one man control everything. Yeah, fine, he was up to it. But after he died, we got nothing. What are people more loyal to? A person <clears throat> or an idea? <clears throat> it's usually a person, in my experience. Okay, when men lead other men into battle, they might say, okay, for the king, they might say for, in the name of God or whatever, but it's usually the idea. That's what I think. That we are fighting a just war, that this needs to be done. So you would say a mixture of both? Yeah, yeah, kind of. It, it depends. It's, it's the same thing that uh, <clears throat> when you're invading another country, it's usually you use the word fatherland. When you're defending it, you use the word motherland. Mm -hmm. Now, think about it like this. All these mighty empires fell due to the fact they had no mental mobility left in them. So then we come down to Moa Zedong in China when the nationalists were in power, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, I think? Chiang. Yeah. So when Japan invaded China, <clears throat> the nationalists and communists decided to put their differences aside. They made a coalition. <clears throat> now, the problem with the nationalists was Mao had studied their political philosophy, right? They were heavily armored. They had no mental mobility. They looked at precedent. They were never able to think outside the box. So what actually happened with him was that when they made that coalition, they knew, he knew that Chang followed Baron von Clausewitz, who wrote on war. Problem with Clausewitz is today, even where they study him in military academies, military universities, they only study him for the philosophy of war, not for the tactics. If you study him for the tactics, you're sure to get killed. Mm -hmm. All the generals who followed Grant followed Clausewitz to the letter. Grant, however, didn't. He innovated and he won the Civil War. 
Same thing we see with Napoleon. He followed Clausewitz, and Clausewitz finally got him killed. <clears throat> so the relation down here was that, you know, Mao decided to base himself in Manchuria. The nationalists attacked the Japanese. They had a war. The communists came in as guerrilla fighters. Ultimately, the nationalists won, and they resumed their hostilities with the Chinese, with the communists. Now, Mao told his commanders that all the cities they had in Manchuria, they were to evacuate them. There was a massive outcry about this, but they listened to him. They evacuated all the cities and the nationalists entered them and they conquered Manchuria. Now, Mao knew that their political philosophy overlapped with their military philosophy. He then decided to send the communists in. Suddenly, these very liberated cities became the death traps for the nationalists. Communists, you know, invaded them, besieged them. They started, you know, fighting using guerrilla tactics. Here's the thing about guerrilla tactics. The guerrillas are never heavily armored. No, never. They can't afford never. to. And according to Guru Gobind Singh Ji, on his deathbed, this was the advice he gave the Sikhs, that the most sacred form of warfare is the guerrilla warfare. Because in our history, we have used guerrilla warfare always to uh, overtake the foe. Now, someone who's heavily armored cannot afford attrition. They cannot afford to let their armor be worn down for them to be seen as being weak. You would expect a tank to, you know, destroy long lines of guerrillas, just plow straight through them. But the fact is, a tank has weak spots as well. If you find the chink in the armor, you can exploit that. And that's exactly what Miao did. He not only got Manchuria back in a few months' time, he marched on the entire China. That's what it did. And uh, even though Chiang Kai-shek had better weapons, hmm. he actually had the uh, American support as well. Yep. And that's the reason why Taiwan wasn't straight up invaded after you know, Mao got China and the mainland. So, he's still you know, lost. Yeah, he's still lost. So the thing is that, you know, mental mobility is something our people lack. Now, I mean, a long time ago, I was witness to an incident in India near Batinda where a few nags, you know, had a fight with each other. And, you know, using their swords and their guns, they charged each other. And I was reminded of something, you know, Surjit Singh Gandhi and his Sikhs in the 18th century tells us that the Rajputs used to charge the enemy with cold steel. And they expected the enemy to retaliate, you know, similarly, like reciprocate their bravery. Except someone who was far-sighted as Ahmad Shah Abdali or, you know, Sikh Sardars who were, you know, always thinking outside the box. All they did was they dug trenches, put their musketers and cannons there and ordered them to fire. And after a few minutes, there were no more Rajputs. You know, the rigidity with which you know these uh, Hindu uh, rulers ruled with the caste system and everything it was upset by the Sikhs because really the Sikhs were thinking outside the box like the gurus had taught them to we did not have the greatest landmass we did not okay fine then let's say we did not have such significant victories but the thing is we fought to liberate the masses and usher in a new political order doing away with the armor of the old one would you agree with that statement Yep, I would.
So ultimately, Dion, who the fingers when I witnessed these Nihangs, the they fought each other for up to two hours. They just couldn't overpower each other. You had one guy running with a dang, other with a barcha, other on a horse with a sword, uh, with guns, etc. And cops came along and uh in less than 20 seconds, they had the whole lot on the ground. And different tactics? Different tactics. <laughs> now, this is not to say that I'm endorsing what actually happened, the fight between the Nihangs or what the cops did, but the reality is that, you know, I was actually watching a video the other day, uh, two Nihangs who are brothers, and they had a fight with each other, and one of their uh, boys comes along with a sword and tries breaking a brick wall with the sword. You can clearly see that the metal is screaming for respite. Kept on smashing it into the brick and the metal kept on getting chipped and chipped and chipped and chipped and chipped. You know, in real fights back in the day, the flat face of the sword was used to block the edge of the sword and never the edge on edge because that's how the blades broke, no matter how strong. So really down here, the fingers that, you know, the fact that, you know, they... Okay, I'll say it about a lot of Sikhs as well. They believe that, you know, ultimately they know the best tactics, that they know the best battle tactics. It doesn't work out. Even when the Sikhs tried guerrilla warfare against the British, the British used their soft power to, you know, wean the Punjabi masses away from the guerrillas. That's actually a very strong statement. And uh, I have it in my mind that, that people are more likely to see long-term benefits. Would you agree with this? Yeah, yeah. People are always looking for the long-term benefits. You know, even, let's say, in the 1870s, or let's say, even in the 1920s, when the uh, Gadar movement and the uh, Babar Akali movement, people were more than willing to aid the British because they were expecting large rewards, the soft power. Sometimes you don't have an option, but the thing is that in today's time, you need to remember that there is soft power and there is hard power. Hard power will always lose to soft power. In the long run, it will. Examples of soft power today. Well, I mean, you've got commercial uh, McDonaldization of the world. That's soft power. That's soft political power. Yeah. Yeah. Materialism. You could also say kids wearing uh, T-shirts or, let's say, sweatshirts of American universities. You, the thing is that the point of this talk is that our people need to develop leaders who can think in terms of both hard power and soft power. They need the mental mobility. The thing is that, okay, look at it this way. <clears throat> the British told us we were a warrior race because they saw we believed ourselves to be a warrior people. They realized we couldn't think beyond war after Ranjit Singh. Ultimately, we are still cannon fodder. Well, labels are hard to wash off, that's true. I think Gyani Gyan Singh has written that the caste of war, the Jat of Khalsa is uh, Danga and Jang. I can't really remember the exact quote. The uh, birth of Khalsa is for war, this is for war, that is for war, etc., etc. Everything a Sikh does is for war. So once, you know, again, he was reading it out in the Gurdwara and I saw someone stand up afterwards and they said, look, when you relate history, it's all good. We are not denying history. 
We are not denying we had to fight. We are not denying that the Guru gave us five kakas. We need to keep on ourselves 24-7. We are not denying the need for Kirpan even today. But why can't you tell us the long-term purpose rather than the short-term purpose behind this? Well, uh, even if you ask somebody who, let's say, has some knowledge of world history or some knowledge of politics, they would say war is temporary. What are you going to do after you win the war? Mm-hmm. That's what a lot of historians have remarked that Sikhs do not know how to consolidate their gains. Well, we haven't been able to, that's true. I mean, okay, so if you're thinking about mental mobility, you need to understand that the world has changed. Obviously, you need to change your tactics along with the world. We're not saying you need to change Sikhi like the upgrades will say that. Thing being that I still have, I, I am Amritari. I retain the five kakars. I will never let go of my kirpan. <clears throat> I keep a sharp kirpan. I believe it to be a weapon. Yes, but I'm not saying that we do away with it altogether. We have to find ways to keep it on ourselves all the time. But if someone's, if 10 guys have AK-47s in front of me, I'm not going to take the kirpan out. Or even one guy against ten guy, ten guys with karpan, and one guy with a even a pistol, let alone an AK forty seven. Exactly. So, yeah, sure. You know, bladed weapons have their place as well in combat. But the thing is, you've got to realize each situation is going to be different. You know, other matter down here we have is that <clears throat> mental mobility. It's really hard to differentiate it from mental armor. I had a talk with someone and they were telling me that, you know, if you look at the Nyangs today, that they're all tactics and everything. What is there beyond that? What is beyond that? If you look at the current crop of Sikh leaders who are on ring now, look, the Saragri statue, which was made down in the UK. What is beyond that? Beyond that is social acceptance that we fought for you. So please accept us. I mean, I believe there was a similar statue in Wolverhampton, and I at that time there was the same, you know, hola blah, big kahuna about, you know, getting all the politicians across. Turned out the Gurdwara had funded the building itself. <laughs> it, I find it quite interesting. Well, my own grandfather fought in the, in the World War. Hmm. And I was like, especially in the UK, it's like, okay, they told you that you were a martial, martial race and you accepted it, and the label still goes on. But we fought for the English who were actively oppressing us and enslaving us. So are you proud of that? So when you celebrate Saragadi, what exactly are you celebrating? That look, we make the best cannon fodder, please do. That's the same thing. I mean, this is what we're seeing. The world has moved on from World War II. The world has moved on. People are living. Thing is that we are telling the world that, look, this is what we did in the past, and the world is telling us, well, this is what we are doing today. It's, it's just baffling that why exactly are you proud that your colonial oppressor used you? It's, <clears throat> it's quite a mind-numbing sort of a thing going on down here. I mean, getting back to the original point, the Spartan Testudo complex down here. So one lot, the traditional lot, believe that, you know, 
what applied in the 18th century will apply for today. Oh man, this thing is very prevalent. Right, I mean, Guru Gobind Singh Ji says to by Nandalal in the Tanka Nama that the Khalsa is one who invades and finishes off the Malaysia. I'm sure invasion and finishing off consists of more than just going there and killing all the Malaysia. I mean, the Guru entered into negotiations with Aurangzeb, the Guru entered into negotiations with Bahadur Shah. So you could see that the, dyna- the, 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 dyna- the dynamic down there exactly was that, you know, we play both hard and soft, needs be. <clears throat> On the other hand, down here, today's lot won't be able to do that, especially the people who believe they hold tradition. They haven't been able to step outside those mental confines. You know, anything positive, if you believe in it, all good, you have to live it. Mm. This is the point I always make. Every morning we do Nethanem. Let's not make it a ritual. Let's try living Nethanem throughout the day. Well, through one's own life, yes. Japji Sahib is about hukam. It should remind us every minute of our day afterwards that, look, we need to live within hukam. Let's not hold any delusions. It's just a waste of time. Jab Sahib tells us that there is infinity out there and we are a small speck in that infinity, but we need to make a mark in that infinity. Savaya gives us the virtues of humility that, you know, this is what happens when you're humble. Chopai gives us, you know, the path to the fact that we need to protect ourselves and protect those others who come to us. Another side is that, you know, that whatever happens in life, you need to have your mental equilibrium. You know, you need to be peaceful. You need to be in bliss. Fine, then live your life accordingly. But if you read them like magical, mystical mantras, expecting something from there, well, that's not going to happen, is it? Mm-hmm. You know, so the thing is, you retain kakars, make it a uniform, you know. Use them to allow people to judge your conduct. Judge yourself. Are you worthy of wearing the kirpan? Are you worthy of keeping cash? Are you worthy of using the kanga? But, you know, then the upgrade woke liberalism which comes along is that, you know, something which I don't understand about them as well is that obviously we have, you know, proved that they're stuck in the mental testudo complex themselves. You know, too much over liberalism. They have armored themselves with liberalism. They can't see outside its confines and realize that discipline is necessary and conservatism to some degree. But you, have you noticed something? What? They retain the Sikh appearance themselves while deriding it? Uh, Not all of them. The foremost ones? Could say that. You know, like, this is what I think happened down there at Anandapur Sahib. Now, Guru Gobind Singh, you got up and said, I need a head. You know, the first lot to run away ran outside the gates and they're still running today. They only had the Gesh, the Dari and the Dastars and they just ran away. And they're still running today, trying to get away from all the discipline of the Khalsa and, you know, put liberalism in its place. The second lot only ran to the exit points and stood back to see what the Guru did so they could opportunistically exploit it. And we're seeing both of them today. One lot is wearing the kakars and saying that you can't, you can't judge us because they're saying that the kakars are not divine. So basically, they're trying to give themselves a free pass that because we're wearing them, we are divine. The other lot know that they can't live up to the expectation which the guru has of you know people who retain the kakars. So they're trying to deny their existence in the very first place. 
stuck in the middle is the common Sikh who does not know what to do. Sure, you would agree that it's mind-boggling at the end of the day, but these are two extremes. I believe the, you know, hyper-conservatism and hyper-liberalism. I guess we need a balance between both, but we also need to remember that the preservation of identity is always based on being conservative. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, I would agree. And I also like to say that uh, hyperliberalism versus hi hyperconservatism, hmm. there is actually no, no middle way. There's just sicky. Hmm. You know, yep. there, are, there are people who, who exist today who are trying to hyperliberalize Sikhi, and there are people who are trying to save Sikhi by being hyperconservative. Both of these camps exist. Yep. But do, do both of these camps understand Sikhi, or do both of these camps can take us a normal everyday seat into a situation where, where our future is secure? I guess one camp talks about Sikh reformation, another camp talks about Sikh uh, traditionalism, the third camp, which is the New Front, talks about Sikh uh, liberalism, but I don't really see anything about Sikh revivalism anywhere among them. I mean, uh, the way I see it, the way I see it, that none of these camps have arrived at a position where their views have stopped changing. Hmm, hmm. They say one thing one day and then probably flip entirely on it within a month. It's, it's quite significant you say that, but I mean, as far as I can deduce for the upgrades, there needs to be some time given to them to stabilize their views and see what eventually comes out of it. But I believe that when you're dividing yourself into this brand that, you know, we're upgrading the punt, no, we're preserving the punt's past, or no, we're living the punt's past, or even, uh, you, you know, we're reforming we, the punt. No, no, we are the punt, nobody else is. Yep, I mean, oh yeah, that's a significant part of it. I mean, yep, there are, you know, Aspects of the revivalism are referred to in each and every camp, but at the end of the day, everything is so fluid that it's irrelevant in the long run. You know, I mean, <clears throat> like, okay, so I told you about the Nhanks and the cops, how they had a clash and, you know, what happened down there. So, you know, talking from personal experience, those guys are pretty much, you know, weapons first, debate or, you know, discussion later. In today's time, that isn't going to work. But then if you look at it historically, even Guru Gobind Singh Ji was prepared to sit down and talk matters out with Aurangzeb, the Mughals and the Rajputs, as long as they respected the Sikhs' right to exist. When the Guru needed to, he confronted them in an armed manner. So, you know, that's the first thing. Second thing down here you need to look at is that Banda Singh Bhadr built up on the principles of military strategy which Guru Gobind Singh Ji taught him but he also innovated at the same time. So he didn't become a hardened conservative. He was innovative. He was innovative. Now, this is something which Guru Gobind Singh Ji told by Nandalal in the Tankanama or the Rehetnama, I can't remember which one, that the Khalsa is original. The Khalsa does not copy anyone else. You know, in the Rubayat of Pai Nandalal, he also mentions in one of them that, you know, the Khalsa 
only worships the Galbrook. The Sikh, the Gursik is original. And that goes back to your point that you made a certain time ago that, you know, the Khalsa is constructive and not, you know, entirely destructive. <clears throat> so the thing is, you know, you can be construct, uh, conservative and innovative at the same time. You can be, you know, I guess you can say you can be liberal and innovative at the same time. But it all comes down to what are you really conceding to arrive at those positions? Okay. Change is the only permanent thing in the entire universe. Would you agree? Yep. We need to change with the time. A simple statement yep. that can be bent into anything. We need to change with the time, so we need to let go of the old traditions. Some people could say that. Yep, it's, it's emotionally loaded. Yeah, we need to change with the time, so let's innovate. Mm. Some people might take it this way. Yeah? Yep. yep. Some people might think we need to change with the time, so let's change entirely. Mm. How mm. are you going to implement that change, which is needed because the world is constantly moving forward and evolving? You don't want to be left behind. You don't want to be in a position where your own children would think that you belong in the past. Mm -hmm. I guess one aspect down here to give a perfect example is the Sikh identity, especially for males, the, you know, the Keshatari parents, you know, the having the Panchka cards down here. People become pretty emotionally loaded on this point as well. The ones who are saying we need to liberalize ourselves, they will say we need to get rid of that identity. The inference is always there. The inference is always there. The implication as well. And the ones who are saying that, no, we do not need to get rid of this identity. As a counter opposite, they entrench themselves further by saying that we need to live in the same way we lived, you know, two centuries ago. Yep. <clears throat> Eating out of uh, Serbalo with an iPhone in, in your pocket. <laughs> and I mean, in the middle is the Sikh. So, okay, then our clothes change. Today, we do not wear the Bana. We, you know, wear, you know, a Western style dress. The point I want to make down here is there are, you know, fundamentals though to Sikhi. And one of them is that you wear your beliefs on your sleeves. So you got the Sikh appearance down here. You know, obviously, gone are the, you know, uh, big bulky the stars of the past the rounded you know ward the malas which you know the sings and the singer in the past used to wear before going to war gone are, the, gone are those helmets everything we have the simple patiala shahi the star today you know the multiple larvans barnala shahi whatever shahi you know you've got the triangular pug nowadays but the fact is you're not That's conceding cool. on the identity no right Okay, regarding the Kirpan, they're all with issues with the Kirpan. Now, that incident which happened in Australia, the kid was about to get stabbed by another boy, a bunch of children with scissors in their hands. And, you know, the child felt compelled to defend themselves. So as a last resort, they took out their Kirpan and fought back. The school admitted as much. And, you know, there was obviously sit-down and negotiations with the state at the time, state premier. The fact that children are still allowed to carry Kirpans down there indicates that, you know, a full inquiry was done and the truth was found out. But some people want to stretch this point further. You know, there are others who are saying, some of them, that, you know, the child did fine, all good. 
that this needs to happen more and more, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. You know, they're not looking at the fact that the schooling system is beginning to fail, that we need to change the school systems. We can't be reacting to these uh, events. We need to be proactive against them. Things shouldn't come to a point where the child feels compelled to defend themselves. And let's face it, schools in the West are pretty shit where it comes to bullying and minorities. Other hand, we have people who are saying we need to do away with the Kirpan altogether. And you ask them that, you know, these are the fundamentals of the case, but that does not matter that they're them. They do not want to listen to that at all. Stuck in the middle is the common speak, like you and me. You know, we got the shitty sub, we wear it here, we wear a small one at work, we wear a bigger one at home and outside. Now, the thing is, one side is telling you that you need to use it. Another side is telling you to do away with it altogether. Both sides are claiming to be Sikhs. And the guy in the middle is confused as to what the hell am I going to do? Because I can't live like I used to in the 18th century. And then for the other lot, how am I going to go against what my guru says? Well, that's the position we find ourselves in today. That's that's the way the things are. Uh, I don't think they're going to change in the, in the near future, anyhow. That's why I say now. For example, if you go outside to buy chicken, like you want, you know, ready-made chicken. Let's let's just take an example. If you want to buy butter chicken, it's fifteen bucks from outside, right? You bring it to your house, you heat it up, processed food, chokes your arteries, contributes to a high blood pressure. You go out. And you buy another chicken, which is maybe for $10, $9, $7, you know, uncooked, bring it home, cook it yourself, make it healthy, have it, you're investing in your health as well. You know, ultimately, you have two options down here as well, similar to the individual buying the chicken. You can go out and listen to these various camps who are, you know, themselves... It's amazing how they've entrenched their beliefs. So, you know, going back to the Spartan test tutor complex, again, they're entrenched in their beliefs. You can either buy that and get involved in all these unnecessary debates or, you know, counter calling, or otherwise you can just come back home and rely straight on the Guru Granth side. What we need to do is invent a time machine so we can go back to Guru Nanak and ask him directly. I mean, you know, Guru Gobind Singh, you told by Nandalal that, look, if you want to talk to me, it's all in the Granth Ji, you know, Guru Granth Sahib Ji. You want to discuss matters with me, it's all in the Guru Granth Sahib Ji. Read it and believe that I've given you advice. You know, that's what's Guru Gobind Singh Ji, that's what he told by Nandalal Ji. Now, of course, we have people down here who claim that, you know, Pai Nandalal was a minister at the Mughal court, and I asked one individual, so how does this work out? And he said, really betrayed Banda Singh Badr and was made a minister at the Mughal court. And I asked him, oh, yep, sir, do you have evidence of this? And I'm not denying it didn't happen or maybe it did happen. I'm not saying anything like that. But do you have evidence? Uh, no, I don't have evidence. I just believe it happened. Hmm. On the other hand, on the other hand, if you look at the other lot, they will say, because it's written in a text, written in so-and-so, period, Baba Banda Singh Badr betrayed the Panth. You do impartial research, you find out nothing like that happened. So both camps are actually lost in their own beliefs, own systems, whatever preconceived notions they have, but it's the guy in the middle who's getting his butt banged all the time. Hmm. 
And, you know, you can, you can have something positive, even, you know, or something negative. Once you take the emotional position and entrench your beliefs further and further and further, that's when you start suffering from the Spartan test pseudo complex. You become the prisoner of your own room, they say, of your own castle. Of your own thoughts, really. Like, you know, you have notions, fine. And, you know, this is the problem in the West. An unrelated hypothesis is formed, and then you try creating facts or try fitting facts to prove, you know, prove the veracity of your theory, you know. You bring your understanding of something which has happened, which is totally wrong to the table, and then you try, you know, deforming facts to fit that understanding, to prove that understanding is the right understanding. That's exactly what we are doing down here as well. You know, both camps are doing it. You know, we are oscillating between, you know, time machines, go back to the 18th century, and we're oscillating between, you know, people who would, I mean, I don't know what they would have us do. <laughs> so, okay. <clears throat> I think an example to go with would be, we have already arrived at the answer, mm. but you're still trying to formulate the question. Yes. Yes, that's the thing. You're trying, still trying to formulate the question, really. And that's what it is. That's like, I mean, look, if you look at it in the court cases, the horns of a dilemma, you're only dealing with the evidence in front of you. Assumptions don't count for much. In the court, they don't. There is an assumption among many Namtaris that, you know, Guru Gobind Singh Ji did not die. He rather went into the forests and that, you know, the other the Sikh texts who reference his death, all 99% of them, these texts are pretty fake. Hmm. So really, what can you do about it in one matter or the other? So really, at the end of the day, when people entrench themselves, I guess you have to direct them towards asking that, are you changing with the times or are you changing your reaction to the times? Uh, well, human beings don't shed their skin. So it's like when the time changes, you have to, well, you have to change your tactics or maybe change your approach. Well, you're not going to change yourself. Otherwise, you know, you're just somebody else. You've lost what you are. You know, when society becomes entrenched, I mean, look, I wanted to cover the two different, you know, spectrums of this because people say, oh, if you're conservative, you become liberal and everything goes fine and vice versa. Fact is, you know, have you heard of John Club? Yep. yep. So the problem with Arab people, especially Sikhs, is that if they see someone like John Club, they say, oh, no, God in age, look here, this guy's written that, that guy's written that, it's all man-made. Fingers, Glob actually articulates that he's just observing certain fundamental principles, and these principles are relevant to the rise and fall of society. So, <clears throat> in these last 20 minutes, John Glob names six stages of society empires, you know, basically all the political dimension. Number one is age of pioneers. So, our age of pioneers would have been the Guru era, you know, they pioneered the Sikh faith, those early Guru Sikhs. Then comes the age of conquest. Now, the best strategy for defense is usually the one which is the best strategy for offense. Well, offense is the best defense strategy. Yep, offense is the best defense. 
So that actually incorporates itself into the second uh, age, age of conquest. Then comes age of commerce, where we uh, consolidate ourselves. So that would have been around. I mean, as Sikhs, we've actually gone through several of these cycles. Our age of commerce would have been around from the late missile period to, you know, the entire Maharaja Ranjit Singh period. Then comes the age of affluence. You know, there is richness. Yeah, there is the poor section of society, but, you know, trickle down economics and, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> now, that leads to age of intellect, intellectual pursuits. Everyone's got the money. They have a high standard of life, a majority anyway. So they start, you know, pursuing intellectual pursuits. The danger down here in age of intellect is when intellectualism and academia loses its purpose, when you do it for no significant purpose and just for the sake of it. That's the issue. I can't remember her name. I'm sure you would know her, the lady, the professor, the female professor who's known as the original mother of feminism, Camellia Page, is it? Pelia, P-A-G-L-I-A. Yeah, Pelia. Anyway, you know how she actually points out that, you know, obviously when there was a need for feminism, you know, gender equity, they fought for it. The way she fought for it, from what I understand, is that women are different to men, but that doesn't mean that society should use those differences to discriminate against women. Fine, fine enough. We can't have babies. They can have babies. You know, all good. But when it actually mutates into the misandry we are seeing today, yeah, there's misogyny as well. I'm not denying that. But the misandry we are seeing today's feminism is that we want to suppress men and persecute them, like we discussed last time. And in the age of intellect, so while they had purpose, you know, while feminism had a purpose, all good, even today, while it still has a purpose, all good. But when you go into the free fall, when you start saying that feminism justifies prostitution, etc., etc., you know, like everything Simran Kortadli covers in that song, Lahu Diyavaz, that's when you start getting problems, especially if you're looking at it in a religious-centric view, especially like Sikhi, you know. Hmm. Right. I just have one one statement to make. Just one. Yep. yep. Water, water always flows downhill. Water always flows downhill. Yep, that's right. And the thing down here is this age of, you know, purposeless intellect. You know, we're seeing it today in Western societies, you know, postmodernism and all these studies. Like, you know, Dr. Balvan Singh told me that in the West, the problem is, you know, as we discussed, Find unrelated theory and try bending the facts to confirm that theory. By that same account, what happens is that then comes, you know, the last stage, the age of decadence. Degeneracy. The age of women. Yep. Yeah. Complete yep. breakdown of society, complete breakdown of morality, no religion, and the, the very foundation of the society or the civilization are slowly eroded away. Where the very yardstick for judging progress becomes depraved. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean... A poison yardstick. A poison yardstick. My belief, my personal belief, is we have the Guru Granth Sahib guiding us to avoid the pitfalls of these... Uh, you know, other societies, other civilizations, other empires, you know. And a part of that is the thing is that, you know, the Spartan Testudo complex is prevalent in all these ages. 
But funnily enough, it is these last three ages, age of affluence, age of intellect, and age of decadence, where it's at its highest. Hmm. This is where it actually entrenches itself. It's like the plague, it takes massive hold. Now, of course, I don't agree with Glub's, you know, analysis that, you know, immigration causes the age of decadence. But the thing is that, you know, skilled immigration is all good. When you have unskilled immigration, you're going to have problems, you know, when you open your doors for everyone. Now, <clears throat> reality is on this side of the debate, you know, from our perspective down here, we Sikhs today are in an age of affluence in the West. The trickling down of that affluence has come to an age of intellect. Now, you know, how many intellectuals can you name who in the past 10 years have actually contributed towards, you know, solidifying Sikhi, Sikh revivalism and, you know, uh, assuring the preservation of the sanctity of the Guru Granth Sahib and, you know, actually articulating a much more uh, impartial view of Sikh history? How many can you name? <clears throat> Zero. Zero. Few exceptions exist. But a few, where there should be the rule of the thumb. <clears throat> Excuse me. So by that very account, if you look at it down here, the rest of them, they don't want to give up on, you know, what their views are. So, yep, they're suffering from Spartan Testudo complex. We got half, you know, glorifying World War One, World War Two, and the colonial, you know, thing about us being a warrior race. We got the other half saying there is, you know, too much fluidity in Sikhi, that there is no such thing as a Sikh identity. There are no parameters to judge Sikh identity with. There was this, this issue that uh, I think I heard it in, in a, a Sam Harris YouTube video. Was it mm. Sam Harris uh, or Douglas Murray? Oh, I saw it a long time ago. They were like, how can, people, how can we people who are very opposite in their ideologies be allies against a third party? <laughs> yep. And he made a very statement that up to a stage, both of their goals are the same. Hmm. You want the removal of what exists today, but for different reasons. Yep. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's understandable. Adina Bek Khan wanted to rule over the Punjab by removing the Afghans, and the Sikhs just wanted to consolidate their own hold over Punjab and beyond by removing him. So, yeah, no, makes sense, makes sense. It's got a historic precedence. Yeah. So this, this very simple example applies today. When people say, okay, we should keep the good parts of Guru Granth Sahib and reject the bad parts. They want hmm. our identity to be erased. Hmm. The other party exists, which want out to, let's say, reclaim that our identity wasn't this to begin with. Hmm. The Sikhs are not meant to be like this to begin with. And yep. there's, of course, a third party who says, you are entirely wrong. You're just, just a branch of something else, just a reformed version of something else. Or you just exist to die for us. The fingers so up till a stage, up till the, a stage, their goal is the same: erasure of Sikh identity. The fingers that we never had that centralized intelligence, uh, intellectual center, which could have actually fought these guys off. 
you know, Singh Sabha Lahore was doing good work, whatever they say about, you know, decolonization, Sikh, colonial identity, etc. Read their works and they hearken back to, uh, you know, the Guru's time. Now, you know, there are many people who say the Singh Sabha codified the Sikh Netanam, the Panjkakars. They refer to older texts to say that, no, these existed back during the Guru's days. Many people today say that the Sikh identity is not important, but we say that the greatest evidence of the Guru's teachings is that you have to live in this world and you need to wear your identity on your sleeve. What is there so hard to understand about it? They say the world's changed. Here's, here's the funny thing. Here's the funny thing. Looking at the influence of, you know, I guess some Eastern and Western societies, the pacifists tell us to surrender on our, you know, militarism. We have a militaristic st uh, strain in our religion as well. That's, that's reality. Will you agree with that? Yeah, of course. Well, every, every one, every single one of, not just religion, any political ideology, social, social parameters, they all have that. You need something to defend yourself. Otherwise, they, you know, the world's, the world's a cruel place. They want us to alter ourselves in emulation of others. Right? I have, now, some relatives, I have some relatives who just believe that Sikhi means Seva. That's it. Yep. Then we got the people who say identity doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter. You're just an international citizen. You know, all these, I guess, pseudo, that's what I use, pseudo, you know, you can say wokes, pseudo liberals, pseudo feminists. All they have done is make a big mess. And before them, we had, you know, the traditionalists making a big mess. All over the place, you're seeing a big mess, but you're seeing nothing from the Guru Granth Sahib any of you. Can a person have multiple loyalties? No, I don't believe that. So if you are, let's say, a person born in the West, went through at least two decades of liberal indoctrination, how are you going to be loyal to Sikhi? You need to cast off everything you believe about Sikhi to follow Sikhi, first of all. You know, this. I know what I'm saying sounds like, you know, sit in the mountain and drink some green tea type of, you know, unmaterialistic uh, crap which men on the mountains give. But, you know, you need to cast away your preconceived notions. If you have been, you have been, let's say, programmed to believe that there should be equality of outcome, not opportunity, not just opportunity, equality of outcome, otherwise the system is flawed, how are you going to progress forward as a meritocracy the way it should be? Yep, you look at merit. The stupidity being, being that, you know, Wahigur is Nerpo, Nerver, we need to do this as well. Yeah, sure, Wahigur is Nerpo, Nerver, but Wahigur judges, Wahigur has a criteria as well. Otherwise, all the people committing transgressions in the world, they would have it as easy as us. Can you go to a potential employer and have an interview with them and say, you can't judge me? <laughs> Judging is as much as part of life as is force it's actually a, a, a very funny conundrum yeah yeah it is i apply for a job they will do an intense background check they might even do a drug test i don't know 
they judge you on even small things here yeah? yep you you were not working for these two years 10 years ago what's the explanation they're judging you on small things you let's say i want to have a firearms license they will do background check my social media they will need people to interview an extensive background check yeah and yep. every single place you go to but suddenly when it comes to things that that are much more important you can't touch me <laughs> we are all on the same journey some are ahead of others yeah my past is irrelevant your so, you past know, is you yep that picture she put up i mean i'm not going to name her that superstar she's in there she's got full right to wear what she's wearing but those clothes sexualize her as a woman in my opinion they take away from her as a woman they take away that essence and objectify her find then someone wants to say that she can wear them all good but then they shouldn't be complaining that we're being objectified by men when they themselves are actually you know giving into that industry where certain men will objectify their very uh, bodies anyhow puts up a picture of herself and another uh, male individual as well who's doing the same stuff regards sexual uh, sexualization of you know gender a core and a sing doing their thing and everyone's asking where's the core and the sing oh yeah well you know it's this happened a few years back not the current one not the bambi bains one but this also happened a few years back as well so you can see there's a trend going on down there where they're doing this i mean same thing free versus feral where do you draw the line at the responsibilities you know baba nanak has a shabad in gurbani i mean i can't remember it i apologize to the uh, for that to the listeners but it's that you know baba what should be where what should we eat that which does not mess with your bodies or your minds or your devotion baba nanak knew even in baba nanak's time there were you know clothes being made with sexualized both genders and baba nanak wanted us to avoid that no one if you read no, okay yeah no one has the right to you know sexualize a woman least of all a sikh no one has that right you know a woman can be going nude on the streets sikhs will take off their dastars and cover her up it has happened it happens it will keep on happening but at the same mm-hmm. time we also need to understand that if we want to change society and rip all this out from the roots you know at least mitigate the ill effects of this then we also need to look at ourselves you know if i wear a turban i'm fat it are given to the stereotype of you know the you know what they have is a uh, shampi the daddy seek type figure on tv you know sadar ji ke bara baj gaye who's responsible for the uh you know who's responsible for the stereotype for furthering that stereotype of the joker seek it's us it, there there needs to be responsibility you know that's why i say there are two horizons one horizon has us living in the 18th century another horizon has us just dismantling ourselves straight away in between there are changing times i guess there are two sorts of individuals those who change with the times and those who change the times with them but we are just common men so basically we need to change our tactics with the times 
yes, our tactics or maybe our approach, but not ourselves. You see it at Hola Mahala and other festivals in the Punjab. You know, there's always going to be the one singer who's going to be, you know, bow, arrow, two bows, three bows, you know, four uh, tabars, eight kirpans, two barchas, and one gun. And you just think to yourself, how's he going to fight? It's a thing, okay, you are, you are in the 21st century armed with 18th century weaponry. What are you talking about? You know, and that's the problem with the people we have today that, oh, we don't need weapons or no, we need all the full weapons, you know. We need responsibility. Fine, then you got weapons, keep them in your house. Right? You got the shitty sub, wear it with responsibility. But to say, no, we don't need it, chuck it out. We don't need it anymore. We're going to update ourselves or the other one that we're going to keep bigger ones and show off for airports. That's just causing unnecessary pain, unnecessary headache, unnecessary conflict, which we can do well to avoid and focus on, you know, some more beneficial matters. I had a talk on some social media platform not too long ago, and I asked a person that can, can you name, let's say, a woke civilization that has ever existed? Hmm. Never, never happened. Never has happened. There has to be a minimum criteria that has to be met in order to form a community, then a society, then a civilization, or maybe an empire. The Spartans you taught can't, them. You can't even agree that a man is a man, is a woman is a woman. The Spartans thought they were creating a perfect utopia for themselves when they, you know, militarized themselves right to the T. It didn't happen. The Romans thought they were yeah. creating a perfect utopia for themselves. It didn't happen. Today, when we think we are creating a perfect utopia for ourselves by, you know, either reverting to what we did in the 18th century or either, you know, trying to copy, uh, what do you say, atrophied civilizations and societies? A prophet. Uh, I meant rotten. Wait, I, I can't understand your point. What I'm saying down here is that, you know, when there are two factions among us trying to create utopias, the ones who would have us living like we did in the 18th century and the ones who are saying that we need to suddenly, you know, excessively modernize ourselves to the degree we lose our identity. Both of them are trying to create utopias. One is trying to, you know, make bygones come true again. One is trying to, you know, emulate societies which are, you know, rotting away, which have their own conflicts within themselves, who are imploding. Both of them want to create an utopia. Only problem is none of them realize that utopianism is the first step towards fascism and regression. True. You know, the middle ground needs to be there, and the middle ground is there to the Guru Granth Sahib. I would agree with you. Yeah. You know, that's why I say we can't get rid of the Sikh identity. We can't get rid of Sikh principles. But hey, there are always new ways to confront the challenges facing us. The challenges are not new, at least in, in a historical sense. Yep. It's a simple... I'm sure you have heard it in your military circles. The war never changes. The more it changes, the more it stays the same. Yep, yep, yep. That's right. The, cha 
the challenges are same. It's the same product in a different packaging. Yep. Thing is, we need to change our tactics to, you know, suit the times. I mean, if you're going to use the same strategy as you used against cannons for Air Force planes, then yeah, you're just stuffed entirely, aren't you? <laughs> so just a recap. Spartans fell due to the warrior race myth. They imploded. Romans imploded due to the war. Uh, I guess, I mean, what I meant for the warrior race one before the much more uh, pedantic listeners get to me. The fact, what I'm saying is that the Spartans imploded, imploded due to the fact that the Athenians fed them the warrior culture, warrior society mythos, made them into shelled tortoises so they couldn't, you know, mobilize mentally or physically. Come down to the Romans, two-way split, warrior society, liberal society. They imploded, imploded. Now it seems to be the turn of the Sikhs. We are between two factions who are tearing us apart we need to find our own course in the middle, not as the Sikhs of anyone else, but as the Sikhs of the Guru Granth Sahib. And that's the takeout from this podcast. That's the takeout from this podcast. Yeah, sure, we gave a lot of long-winded examples, but I believe they were necessary. I believe they were necessary. Right, now, <clears throat> I know there are many people who listen to us who follow the Upgrade School of uh, Thought, and I know that they would actually have some concerns over what we were saying. But the reality out there is that both sides are, you know, do you get the impression that these sides only exist for each other? Like the conflict is because both of them exist. They feed off the conflict. They justify their existence like that. Well, you have to wait them out. It's okay. You have to arrive at a place where your views are consistent. That this, this is what we want, you know? Arrive at a place where could, you could just write a single sheet of paper and write a few points. This is who we are. This is what we want. Yep. Well, <clears throat> just wait it out. The, they do have some good points. Yep. I agree with quite a few of them. But they say we have 98% DNA commonality with the, with the chimpanzees as well. So the minor differences, <laughs> they count a lot. Yep, minor differences which count a lot. Otherwise, those among both factions who want to get out of the Spartan Testudo complex, who want to join themselves with the Guru Granth Sahib, we have no problem because if you follow Guru Granth Sahib, you neither follow Pujari Vadi Soch and you neither follow the you know modern cynical school of thought. You have a purpose in your life. You know, you see it in the West today, there is a sense of purposelessness. You know, no one has a purpose down here. People are directionless. You can get them to do anything for it, you know, any element you bribe them with. It's the same in the East as well. Humanity has entered a crossroads where being human is under question as well, by itself. We have the Guru Granth Sahib, which prepares <clears throat> us for such times. Now is the time to become Sikh revivalists and only adhere to the Guru Granth Sahib, only follow Rehat Mariada, what more can we ask for? Well, there's a lot more we can ask for, but that's into the future. That, that's into the future. For now, we need to stabilize ourselves as a community, as a society, as a faith itself as well, you know? By Nandala asked Guru Gobind Singh Ji, Maharaj, how do we get darshan of you? And Maharaj said, it's not darshan. Don't just come for darshan. Come to talk with me. 
there is the nirgun sarup of all of us. You know, Vaheguru Kudrat, which has created us. That's nirgun. It's got a purpose, but you can't see it. You can only see the the products of that purpose. Then there is the sargun sarup, which I'm sitting in front of you, Nandalal. But after I'm dead, after I die, the sargun sarup will be a Sikh who follows the Guru Granth Sahib and Hatha Mariada down to the T. And if you want to talk to me, if you want to communicate with me, if you want my guidance, come and read the Guru Granth Sahib. Come and read the Guru Granth Sahib. And I think every person should do it, read, read for themselves. If fear seeks once in our lifetime, at least we should be reading the Guru Granth Sahib. And I guess the challenge is that we need to appreciate the poetic aesthetics, but we also need to get over the sense of religiosity we have that, you know, this is uh, the Guru Granth Sahib is for religious situations. There are fundamental principles in Gurbani. If we identify them, we can apply them to our each and every living moment in our lives. That's why I say more important than reading Gurbani is living Gurbani. Very important. You know, that's that's a very important distinction to make. Yeah, sure, society has its ways. Society will always have its ways. It's corrupt. The human individual, you know that uh, quote they uh, attribute to Baba Nanak, the one he never said that before becoming a Sikh, Hindu, Muslim, Christian, we need to become a human first. Baba Nanak never said that because the common human is what? An animal, a beast. I was born as a human. End of debate. Yep. Fact is, common human goes around. Look, this this is something I've seen of my age group. Everyone is so bloody obsessed with sex. They are having open sex, casual sex with each other. Until the day they get married, they just can't form that bond with their spells. The brain just doesn't allow them to do it. That's basic biology. Basic biology. The call of the sperm is pretty strong, you know. Sperm is infinite, but it also has a quality. That quality depletes over time. The call of the sperm in a man's brain is very, very, very strong. But the guru is saying, control yourself. You know, control yourself. Do not let that call guide your life. Have some moral, have some ethic. True. There is the same guidance for a woman. You know, this this thing about the fact that if you, you know, talk against sex, you're dereading feminism. If you talk against casual sex, thing is a mother has a role to nurture a child, to nourish a child. A father also has a role. We're a father just, has a bigger role, actually. I guess in a way in today's society, a father does have a bigger role. The father loses his job. Even, you know, met. look, as ugly as this is going to sound, if a man isn't successful in life, he will never get married. But if a woman isn't successful in life, chances are she will get married. Right? Now, yeah, sure, we are saying there is no gender equity in Sikh practice, even though there is in the Sikh philosophy. What's stopping us from, you know, implementing that gender equity? But rather, everyone is just taking pot shots at each other. Hmm. You know, let's just remember Sahib Mera Nava Sada Sada Datar in everything we do in life. Otherwise, when we become entrenched, when it becomes a habit, we don't know when our doom is going to come. But come, it will. Come, it will. There's no denying that. 
there's no there's no denying that you know the flower knows that the bumblebee is always going to come and collect the nectar and there are some flowers what they do is they just you know embrace it so tightly they suffocate the bee and kill it light a lamp and the moth starts going around the lamp and gets burnt by it the flame knows that the moth is desperate by habit other too much bull let's just remember that we are born animals but we need to die humans and sikhi is the only path which can show us how to die as humans how to achieve as humans how to live and breathe as humans how to create a future generation of successful humans let's get out of our shells there shouldn't be no shell to begin with because it's a trap because really our shell is becoming our bowl that is becoming our bowl Hmm. So, any final words? Would you say we are not actually trapped in a turtle shell? We are trapped in a langar balti. <laughs> okay, that's pushing it. That's pushing it. But yeah, we seem to be, uh, you know, in a langar balti with no edge around the corners. Crabs in a bucket. That's what I meant. Crabs, crabs in a bucket. You know, paneer in a bucket. <laughs> no. pakoda in a pakoda in a bucket <laughs> right a classic pakoda pakoda trap pakoda trap you know it's it's the reality though we just the most you know progressive elements of our faith we have made them into our shells true so let's have a rethink about where we want to be as sikhs and what sikhi is That's all for today. Thank you for listening. Vaheguru ji ka khalsa, Vaheguru ji ki fateh. Thank you.